0: Hello there, welcome to Let's Get Sexy, the podcast where I read an erotic story and you listen to it. Series 4, we are reading Death is a Beautiful Blonde by David McAllister. And we're on part 3 of that story, subtitle, Mimi is Missing and Bam Barkley is in Too Deep to Pull Out Now. (laughs) Lovely bit of double entendre there, considering what happened last time. Speaking of last time, let's do a brief recap. There weren't great strides forward in the narrative, Uh, it was mostly focused on Bam and Mimi having anal sex, but the developments that there were involved the body of Mimi's father, which she claims she came home to find lying in a pool of blood with the gun by its side in the basement of the Helmsley Mansions. Bam suggested she go to the police and explain that she's found the body of her father, but Mimi was not open to dealing directly with the police. She's acting very suspiciously, and she wants Bam to help her cover up her father's death by burying him in secret and then pretending that he's gone away on one of his trips. Bam was initially sceptical, but as we know by now, he can't resist the the allure of Mimi's body, and since she offered up anal sex in return for helping her cover up what could well be a murder by her own hand, Bam decided to go down that route and to get himself involved in what is almost certainly a sticky situation. I didn't intend for that to be a pun, but it did work out nicely, didn't it? The chapter we're about to read has 4.1 thousand words, so it's slightly longer than the previous chapter. It's got a rating of 4.5, and it's had 6.4 thousand views. It's had no likes, (laughs) unfortunately, and there are no comments either. So we'll have to do our analysis all on our own, without the assistance of helpful commenters. As I always say, I'm reading this for the first time, don't know what's going to happen in this chapter. Anything could happen, as far as I know because when I'm reading it aloud and recording this, it's the first time I've ever read it, and my reaction to what happened in this chapter in the second part of the podcast will be my genuine first impressions. Just briefly before I begin, I want to mention the author, David McAllister. You can find their stories, maybe check out their back catalogue. You can find them by heading over to literotica.com and searching for David McAllister, and McAllister is spelled with two L's. Now, that's out of the way, I hope you enjoy part three of Death is a Beautiful Blonde.
1: Drive your car down the filthy streets of the city A strange girl comes out of the rain and gets into your car She's so good looking that you're not sure how you're supposed to
0: Drive, Mr Barkley. Drive. I'm no detective. Not any more, you hear. You can drop that Mr Barkley business. Just call me Van. Mr Barkley, I said drive! Hauling the body of her old man, I followed Mimi out towards the bottom of the cliffs behind Helmsley Mansion. We got to the spot where she wanted him buried, and I proceeded to dig a hole while Mimi watched and waited. Big and wide, she had instructed of the grave I was to dig. As I dug deeper into the ground I couldn't help but wonder if Mimi was up to something. She was quiet, silently watching me. What was she planning? A million ideas crossed my mind as I dug, but none of them seemed to work out. As I threw each shovelful of earth over my shoulder I kept thinking to myself, what was she thinking, out here behind the house at the bottom of the cliffs? It was still dark, the sun wouldn't be up for hours yet, and then I had it all figured out. Big and wide, she had said. I wasn't digging one grave, I was digging two. One for the old man, and one for me. Mimi thought she'd had it all figured out. She'd killed the old man, she'd killed him, and then made up some sob story with a plan to lay it on to the first sucker she could find that night. She'd lure him home, give him a little persuasion to sweeten the deal, get him to dig the graves, and then as soon as his back was turned, bam, she'd pull a bullet through his head. No witnesses, no accomplices, just a grave, big and wide, with the bodies already inside. It all wrapped up pretty neatly, but there was one little flaw in Mimi's plan. She had jumped into my car, and I was no sucker. I had to get out of there. She didn't have a gun, at least as far as I could tell. I could easily make a run for it. I forced the shovel into the ground and dug out a good hefty load of earth. Mimi was looking at me, but off guard nonetheless. Quickly, I threw the load of dirt right into her face, and she fell back into the ground. Sorry, baby, I said as I jumped out of the hole and made a run for it. Back at my apartment, I washed up. I still hadn't slept, and it felt like the walls were closing in on me. A few times I grabbed the phone, ready to call the police and report Mimi and the dead body lying near the cliffs, but each time I couldn't help but think of her. The fear I'd seen in her eyes, the way she begged for my help. Her breasts, her soft, pouty lips wrapped sweetly around my cock. What was I doing? I placed the phone back into the cradle. I had no proof that Mimi murdered that man. I wasn't even sure she would have killed me. It was all in my head. So, maybe she didn't bump off our old man. Maybe she really did need my help after all. Maybe someone was after her, who could tell? In bed, my head retraced the thoughts of Mimi, her perfume, her desperation. She was an incredible woman, strong, confident and mysterious. She had been married to Lewis Helmsley, public enemy number one, but a double cross by a crooked detective landed him in prison, where he was currently residing, leaving Mimi all alone in that lonely mansion by the cliffs. What was she doing now? Was she back inside the mansion? Was she out looking for another chump to help her, sucking his dick? I fell asleep with Mimi in my mind, and the thought of my face buried in those soft, enormous breasts, of Mimi sucking my dick and draining my balls dry. The next morning, on my way out for a cup of coffee, my landlord, Mr. Katz, stopped me as I passed his desk. "'Oh, Mr. Barclay," he called out, "'I have a letter for you.' "'A letter?' I asked, lighting a cigarette. "'Yes, sir,' he replied. This morning when I came into the office, the letter was sitting on the front desk. It has your name on it. He handed me the envelope. Mr. Bam Barkley had been written on the front, a woman's handwriting. I opened the envelope to find a crisp, clean hundred-dollar bill. No note or anything, just a brand new one hundred-dollar bill. Oh, look at that! Mr. Katz exclaimed. A hundred-dollar bill? You're a very lucky man, Mr. Barkley. I gave Mr. Katz a tight smile and a quick nod. I shoved the bill into my pocket and walked out of the apartment, into the late morning sun on the busy city street. I knew it had to have been Mimi, one hundred dollars for my silence. This dame was smarter than I thought. I knew I needed to be careful, she already knew where I lived. She must have been watching me for a while now, knew just where to find me. It was no accident last night on Derby Boulevard, no coincidence that she jumped into my car. I needed to find her. I drove back up the coast along that windy road leading up to Helmsley Mansion. There was a coffee shop just up a bit further, and I knew I'd be able to get a good look at the house as I drove past it. Sure enough, as I got closer to the house, I could make out two police cars parked out front. I didn't see any officers, and I didn't see Mimi, so I drove on. I ordered a cup of coffee in a newspaper when I sat down at the counter of the coffee shop. It was a little joint that didn't seem like it saw much in the way of customers, just an old man turning the front counter and a young girl sweeping the floor. Hey pops, I asked the old man as I waited for my coffee. So what's going on down at the old Helmsley place? I think I spotted a couple of cop cars parked out front as I drove past. The old man paused. Oh, I don't reckon I know anything about that. The young girl behind me spoke up. It's that Helmsley woman, she's gone missing. I turned around to face her. She was a young woman, maybe 18 or 19 years old, beautiful brown hair piercing eyes, and a face that told a story of a bright young girl eager to get out of that dirty little coffee shop and make a name for herself. The shop dress she wore hugged her body tightly, her breasts squeezed inside her top. I was smitten. The old man spoke up. Now, Pamela, we don't go round airing other people's dirty laundry. But, Pa, that's what the officer said when he was in here earlier, she replied. I think it's best that we discuss the affair. Besides, you never know, maybe this guy here knows something about it. Hogwash. The old man waved his daughter off and walked into the back. "'So, the Helmsley woman's missing?' I asked Pamela. She stood there, staring at me with those piercing eyes, fidgeting with her broom. "'That's what the officer said. He also said something about a murder.' I feigned surprise. "'A murder?' She flashed a mischievous smile. "'Yes, that's what he said.' She paused. "'But maybe my pa is right. Maybe I shouldn't be airing other people's dirty laundry. Who are you, anyway?' I shook my head. "'Nobody. Just a guy.' "'Are you with the paper?' she perked up. "'No, I'm not with the paper,' I replied, "'just curious to know what's going on.' She propped up her broom in the corner of the shop and walked over to my seat at the bar. "'You're from the city, aren't you? I can tell.' She got up close to me. "'Take me with you. Take me with you to the city. I have to get out of here.' "'Whoa, whoa! What are you doing?' I asked, trying to back up from her in my seat. "'Please, mister,' she pleaded. "'I can't stay here.' Living like this, all day in this dirty coffee shop, working for my pa? I can't do it any more. I tell you. I can't do it. She leaned in closer to me, placing her hand on my thigh. Listen, baby, I don't know what you think you're doing, but you're barking up the wrong tree. You got me all wrong. I ain't with the papers, and I'm no big-shot Hollywood producer. Just a lousy sucker looking for a cup of coffee and some details about what went on in that house last night. She popped the top buttons of her dress, exposing her cleavage. The tops of her breasts were like caramel-covered sweet goodness. "'You want to know what happened?' "'I can tell you what happened,' she said. I shook my head and took a sip of my coffee. "'Baby, you ain't got nothing I haven't seen before. Just how old are you, anyway?' "'I just turned eighteen last month,' she laughed, popping open a couple more buttons. I slid my eyes down towards her breasts. I hadn't lied about seeing it all before, but who was I kidding? She had some real knockers.' She took my hand, pulled me up from my chair, and led me to an empty phone booth towards the back of the coffee shop. I shook my head at the persistence of this girl. I watched her walk in front of me, her tiny waist and the curve of her ass. She was young and perfect. She pushed me inside the booth and got down on her knees. I'd seen this show before. She pulled out my hog and went to town. She had a little mouth and struggled with my thick python, but she was eager to please. I didn't know what she could tell me, but in that moment, I didn't care. After the girl had finished me off and gobbled up my kids, she looked at me with her beautiful piercing eyes, my cum hiding in the corner of her mouth. "'Take me with you, mister. Please.' I looked down at her. She was giving me those puppy-dog eyes as she gave my dick a soft, gentle suckle, the last tiny drops seeping out and blossoming on her tongue. "'Hey, baby,' I replied. "'I'm telling you, there's nothing I can do for you. I told you I'm not with the press. I'm not a talent scout. I'm nothing, no good to anyone.' Her face fell. Okay then, she muttered. She got up from the floor, fixed herself up, and walked towards the front of the coffee shop. I stood there for a moment, leaning up against the back of the phone booth, my dick hanging low and heavy. My heart broke for her. She was so desperate to get out of that joint. I shook my head, put my dick back inside my pants, and buttoned them back up. When I walked back towards the front of the shop and sat in my seat, she was there, wiping down the counter. Look doll, I said to her, I won't forget about you, and I won't forget what you did for me back there. She looked up at me. Maybe when I get back to the city, maybe I can make some calls. She lit up, her eyes coming to life again. Really, she replied. You would do that for me. Sure, kid, I said, as I reached for a cigarette. I may know someone who could help you out. You're a talented girl, and I may know some guys who could use what you've got. She beamed. Oh, thank you, mister. Thank you. I approached the counter, took my seat, and finished my coffee. Now, what can you tell me about the Helmsley woman? The girl leaned in, becoming very serious. Well, after a police officer came in first this morning, he mentioned that a neighbour had found a body, along the bottom of the cliffs, just behind the Helmsley mansion. A body, I replied. Yes, she confirmed eagerly. It was the body of Mr. Hathaway, Mrs. Helmsley's father. The police were called, and when they arrived at the mansion, no one was home. They waited and waited, and when the servant arrived they questioned her, but she didn't know anything about it either. But she did say Mr. Hathaway and his daughter had exchanged some very harsh words with one another the day prior, something about a will. Mrs. Helmsley left, and that was the last anyone ever saw of her. I sat quietly. And now poor old Mr. Hathaway is dead, and no one knows who did it or why, and Mrs. Helmsley's missing. Fascinating, I replied, the cigarette dangling from my lips. Yes, she replied. "'And you say no one knows where Mrs. Helmsley ran off to?' I asked. The girl shook her head. "'Not a clue. That is, if she ran off at all, "'I'd hate to think that something happened to her. "'She was always a very nice lady, came in here a few times, "'talked with me about getting out of here, "'said she was sure she'd see me on the silver screen some day.' She paused. "'I wonder if she ever made it out to that cabin by the ocean she talked about. "'She said she was on her way out there that morning I talked with her. "'Something very important she had to do.' I looked at the girl intently. "'The cabin by the ocean?' Mimi had mentioned something about that to me last night. I needed to get out there and find this cabin. There was a good chance that Mimi may be hiding there. I placed my hands on the counter and pushed myself back. "'Well, what can you say? It's a different set of people. What with their mansions and money and the diamonds,' I said casually. "'I'll say,' the girl agreed, shaking her head. I got up, folded my paper, and placed it under my arm. I left a nice tip on the counter and gave the girl a wink and a nod. "'Well, I better be going. You hang in there, kid.' I'll make some calls on your behalf. She flashed me a smile. In the meantime, I said, you stay out of trouble. As I drove along the coast, I thought about what the girl at the coffee shop had said about the quarrel between Mimi and her father. Something about a will. I couldn't put it together. Was Mimi the kind of girl who'd put a bullet through her old man's head over an inheritance? It didn't sound like Mimi, and the coffee shop girl said she had spoken to Mimi, said she was a real nice lady. Another one of Mimi's tricks, or was she the genuine article and just found herself mixed up in something she couldn't get out of? I noticed a car following me, a black sedan trudging slowly behind, careful to keep its distance. Too careful, it seemed. I think I may have spotted it back at the coffee shop waiting for me in the parking lot, but I wasn't too sure. I couldn't make out the driver either. I gripped the steering wheel tighter and focused on the road ahead. I shook my head, must have been just paranoid, but still… Something picked at my brain as I looked back at the car in my rear-view mirror. Something wasn't right. I kept driving, a little further and I'd make the next city. I could shake the car once I got off the highway. When I pulled off the main road, the black car was still following me. I made a right onto the next street and it followed, a few miles further and then a left. It was still behind me. When I approached the intersection and stopped for the red light, I looked back. The car kept its distance, three cars behind. I had to get out of there. I didn't like this. I checked the intersection and there were no cars coming in either direction. The light was still red, but I went for it and stepped on the gas. It didn't take long and the black car was on my tail again, making a run through the red light after me. I accelerated. After a few wild turns through the small city's streets, I lost the car and it was gone. I needed to get out of there fast, however, because I knew it would find me sooner or later. I got back onto the highway and drove on. It wasn't long before I reached a small house by the ocean. I slowed down to have a look, and just then heard a voice in my head. It was my landlord, Mr. Katz. "'You're a very lucky man, Mr. Barclay," Lucky man, indeed. Parked right out in front of the ocean was Mimi's car. Mimi's face lit up when she opened the door and saw me standing there. "'Bam! Bam, it's you! However did you find me?' She rushed towards me and hugged me. I couldn't believe it. "'I'm so glad to see you again,' she said." She was as beautiful as ever, and still smelled of the lilac and honey. Can I come in? I asked, when she let me go. Oh, of course, please. Mimi opened the door for me. It was a little place, but beautifully decorated for just a small house down by the beach. Look, I'm sorry about last night, I said, turning to face her. About that bit of, well, giving you a face full of dirt. I didn't know if... I paused. Please, bam. She spoke softly. Let's not dwell on that just now. I know what you mean. You had no idea what to expect, and I'm sorry I put you in that position. I'm sure I can make it up to you. I pulled out the envelope with the money from my coat pocket. This morning I received this back at my apartment. She eyed it carefully. Yes, I left that there for you, she started. I hope it was enough for everything you've done for me. How did you know where I lived? I asked quickly. She paused. Bam, I... I don't know, she started to say, but I interrupted. Just answer the question, I insisted. How do you know where I live? Her eyes grew sad. Oh, Bam, I'll be honest with you, completely honest. She walked over to the large windows, overlooking the ocean. I've been watching you for a couple of weeks now. I knew who you were. I knew your profession. I was desperate to find somebody who could help me. She paused. A few nights ago, someone broke into our house. I don't know who, but I'm almost certain it was somebody sent by my husband from prison. You see... I allowed my husband to go to prison when I testified against him. I knew my statement would put him away, and I did nothing that would get him off. He hated me for that. After the trial, when I visited him, he swore, he swore he'd kill me somehow. I was motionless and stared at Mimi, her back to me as she gazed over the blue waters. He wants my money. He knows of my family's fortune, of course, and he's hidden it in the house. I've certainly sent someone up to murder my father and me, and when he's broke from prison, he'll just walk right into the mansion, get his money, and be off. I moved towards her. And where do I fall into this picture? She turned her head, giving me a sideways glance. I found you because I knew who you were, what you'd done. Detective Bam Barkley. You made some shady deals yourself in the past. Worked with my husband. But then something happened. You had a change of heart. What was it? You double-crossed my husband, and because of your betrayal he was caught— and went to prison. I knew then you couldn't have been all bad. Well, that's not what the fellows downtown thought, I chided. No, apparently not, Mimi replied. True, you had your badge taken away. You're no longer a detective. But let's be honest, Bam, you barely got a slap on the wrist. After all, you brought down Lewis Helmsley, public enemy number one. They couldn't punish you too severely. You're a good guy, Bam Barkley, a good, honest man, who maybe lost your way in the past, but you paid for your sins. You're a good man now. I knew I could trust you to help me. You knew what my husband was capable of. That's why I made an effort to find you. And last night, I knew you'd headed for Derby Boulevard. I knew I'd find you there. But while I was on the street looking for you, I saw a man coming towards me. I was certain it was the same man who must have killed my father. It was luck that I finally saw your car when I did. So I jumped in, and together we fled. It's because of you that I'm safe from my husband, and I'm still alive. I owe my life to you, Bam Barkley. I was just behind her. I placed my hands on the small of her back. I couldn't help myself. I had to touch her. My hands wrapped around her waist, and she turned around and threw her arms around me. We kissed passionately by the window, the sun streaming in, the endless blue ocean before us. She was soft and tasted sweet. Our kiss could have lasted an eternity, and that still wouldn't have been long enough for my satisfaction. I looked at her. She was looking back at me with those big, beautiful eyes of hers. They were shining. I reached up and wiped away her tears. Oh, Bam, she whispered. What do we do now? I held her in my arms tightly. I never wanted to let her go. Don't worry, baby, I replied. I'll stay with you. Tonight we'll head back to the mansion. I'm sure whoever's after you will be back tonight to finish the job. But this time, we'll be ready for him. Alone in the ocean house, and not needing to head back up to the Helmsley mansion until evening, Mimi and I fucked on the living room floor by the huge bay windows overlooking the water. Her naked body was soft and smooth, a beautiful playground for my dick. She let me put it anywhere, in her mouth, in her pussy, between her tits, deep in her ass. It was all fair game for me. I fucked her face relentlessly over the sofa, and she looked up at me lovingly as she tongued my balls, lapping up the salty sweat like a hungry kitten. I bent her over a small desk in the corner and pummeled her tight little ass until she couldn't take it any more. Back on the sofa, I reclined as she sucked my dick until my eyes nearly popped out of my skull. I slammed her up against one of the French doors overlooking the ocean as I buried my cock deep inside her pussy. Our hands held one another, fingers entwined, as I thrust myself deeper inside. When it was time, I showered her with my cum, and she delighted in it as if it were a gift from the heavens. She was on the floor, playful as ever, and looked up at me as my dick fired, blasting her face and tits with a thick molten jizz. She caught a heavy batch of it in her mouth, and relished in my gooey, salty, sticky mess. Afterwards, my balls drained dry. I held her in my arms as we lay on the floor, the sunlight streaming in from the windows. She nuzzled against my chest like a baby as she slept, and I held her tight as I smoked my cigarette, staring out of the window over the endless blue horizon. Her breath was delicate as she lay there, sleeping soundly, soft and peaceful, and filled with cum. I thought about the night ahead of us. I would go back to the mansion and wait for whoever was after her. I thought about the black car that had chased me off the highway and through the streets. I didn't know what I was getting myself into, but I was in too deep to pull out now. To be continued.
1: Drive your car down the filthy streets of the city. A strange girl comes out of the rain and gets into your car. so good looking that you're not sure how
0: you're supposed to respond could it be that death is a beautiful blonde oh well that was a change of pace wasn't it i got all used to this story being heavy on the sex low on the narrative and chapter three completely flipped the script and we got a lot of narrative unfolding before us It looks like maybe Mimi didn't do it. I mean, I feel like the jury's still out a little bit. I felt like digging the grave for two people still hasn't been answered. Why did she want Bam to dig the grave wide enough for two people? I mean, I think Bam was right to fear for his life there. (laughs) that's one of the things i was wondering actually after last week if bam is suspecting that mimi killed her father maybe he should be a bit more worried that she might do the same to him i was a bit concerned that that didn't occur to him in the last chapter but fortunately it has occurred to him here he got himself out of that situation by throwing a a load of dirt right into her face (laughs) And you'd think that was the sort of thing that you couldn't come back from. But she's actually pretty pleased to see him when he turns up and finds her later on (laughs) in the chapter. I think even in primary school, where amongst children, throwing dirt at somebody you've got a crush on is a pretty well-established way that they tend to communicate that. I think even at that age, it has a pretty low hit rate for getting results. I think it usually just pushes them further away. So it's impressive that Bam Barkley has made that move work, even as an adult. It's a bit of a strange detail that she sends him the $100 bill, and from a time frame's point of view, that must have been quite a hard thing to arrange for Mimi, because Bam left in the middle of the night, and then the bill was waiting for him in the morning. That's a heck of a postal service. Or is there something more to it? Maybe there there are more accomplices involved. Or maybe maybe Mimi dropped it off herself as she was leaving to go out to the coast. But it does sound like a bit of a weird thing to do, because what does Bam really owe her? <laughs> I mean, Bam got everything he wanted out of that interaction. Bit of a weird section when he's in the coffee shop and there's a young woman who's so desperate for the chance to leave the coffee shop where she's working that she just randomly sucks a guy's dick. Even before there's really any hint that he might be the sort of person who could help her get out of the coffee shop. I think that really reinforces one of the key themes of this story, which is this is a sexist world. This is a sexist 1940s world where if women want to get along, they had best be willing to use their sexuality to manipulate the men in charge into giving them an opportunity. And that's really the only chance that they've got. Bit of a sad subtext to have in this story because I don't know if it really does much apart from give opportunities for Bam to get his rocks off. Like, why is that in the story? I think just so that Bam can go around extracting a lot of meaningless sex from all of the women who he encounters. I don't think Bam has spoken to a woman yet who he hasn't had some sort of sex with. That's what women are in this story. They are sex objects. And it's crazy what Bam tells her. You're a talented girl, and I may know some guys who could use what you've got. Well, all Bam knows that she's got is big boobies and can give a (laughs) blowjob. So I wonder what kind of career opportunities he's got in mind for Pamela. (laughs) A bit funny, too, that Bam says, stay out of trouble. (laughs) Like, Like, what trouble is he talking about? Like, sucking random men's penises in the phone booth of her dad's restaurant kind of trouble? Because that's the kind of trouble that I would say it's a good idea to stay out of. What would Bam have done if her dad had come out and seen all that going on? It's a bit of a mixed message from Bam, isn't it? Because on one hand, he gives her a wink and a smile and promises to help her out because of the blowjob. He wouldn't have done that without the blowjob. I think that's obvious. But then also he's saying stay out of trouble. So what does he mean by that? I think he genuinely means keep giving men blowjobs. And that's what Bam thinks of as staying out of trouble. Don't refuse a blowjob. That would be getting into trouble. And that scene is weird as well, because the only real bit of information that Bam gets there is that Mimi might be at the home by the ocean, the holiday home. But Bam already knew about the holiday home by the ocean. That wasn't new information. And really, an ex-detective, you would have thought, might have joined those dots without having to be told by an 18-year-old who is just exploited sexually. One thing I did pick up on, though, during that conversation, and this is from Bam, though, so it's not something he gained as information, it's something that we gained as an audience, but is that there is some talk of diamonds in the will, and to do with the Helmsleys, and possibly the Hathaways, Mimi's father's family. We haven't heard about the diamonds before now, and that they've been brought up so nonchalantly here makes me think that maybe that's a bit of a Freudian slip on behalf of the author, and they're just popping in a little detail there that's gonna be important later, but well, I guess it remains to be seen. We'll see if we'll see if diamonds become an important plot device later on. So Bam goes out to see Mimi, and she's kind of delighted to see him. In a way, this is all part of her big plan. She's quite flattering of Bam. Such a good guy, such an honest guy. I don't know how to read that, really. In one sense, you could say, well, you know, she's happy that she's now no longer with her husband and that he's behind bars. Maybe it was an unhappy relationship. Maybe she was in danger, being the wife of a criminal kingpin. And that's why she testified against him and didn't do anything to protect him. But on the other hand, maybe she is still in with the husband and... And I think that's my pet theory. I suspect that Mimi is in cahoots with her husband, and I think it's about getting the inheritance from her father by murdering him. But I also think it's about getting revenge on Bam Barkley on her husband's behalf for the double cross which led to his imprisonment. You know, the way that Mimi mentions that Bam barely got a slap on the wrist for what happened, and even though losing his job was probably quite a big deal for Bam... I don't think that would seem like enough of a punishment for double-crossing her husband. And I certainly don't think her husband, the criminal kingpin, would consider that enough of a punishment for double-crossing him. So I'm not sure how it's going to happen, but I think this is about getting that inheritance and somehow wrapping Bam up in something which will discredit him and lead to him getting in trouble. And maybe even getting Mimi's husband out of trouble. I mean, if they can prove that Bam is a crooked cop, maybe that would make it so the court's decision was invalid. I'm not sure how that would work, but there we go. Seems like the jury's out, in my mind at least. (laughs) I guess I I want to distrust Mimi, because I do think her behaviour is very suspicious. I don't understand why she wouldn't have just gone to the police, especially if she is truly innocent. I don't think there's any reason why not go to the police and do everything through them. Because I don't really think that her reason for worrying about that, being that her dad and her quarreled recently, is enough of a motive, really, for her to be a serious suspect. And I actually think she's making herself much more vulnerable by doing everything she's done. (laughs) You know, by touching the body, moving it, trying to bury it, running away... Like, all of this stuff is super suspicious, whereas I feel like just reporting a murder, even if it's a murder of your father in your house, and, you know, people know you've had an argument, that's still less suspicious than all of those things, and also you have moved the body and tried to bury it and you've run away. (laughs) You're just adding more suspicion by doing those things, so I don't really buy it. And I'm also questioning Bam's motives too. Why is he so interested in sticking by Mimi and being putting himself in harm's way to help her out? It's not like there's any kind of special connection between them, really. As much as he goes on about how perfect Mimi is and how attractive she is, he says almost exactly the same stuff about the girl in the cafe as well. He actually says he's smitten with the girl in the cafe. So I don't really think that Mimi means all that much to him. I don't think that any woman means all that much to Bam. So I wonder what his objectives are here, aside from just being able to have whatever kind of sex he wants with her. And again, going into the sex description here, there's no mention of any pleasure being had by Mimi in that paragraph. It's all focused on what Bam's feeling in his penis. And actually, it sounds pretty unpleasant for Mimi. She's slammed against one of the French doors. She's bent over a desk. She's lapping up salty sweat like a hungry kitten from his balls. Sounds pretty tough <laughs> for her, to be honest. She's blasted in the face and on her tits with thick molten jeers. There was a really strange moment for me in this chapter where Bam talks about himself as if he's somebody else, narrating his own story. It's when he's talking about Mimi's husband, the crime kingpin. He says he was double-crossed by a crooked detective, and it took me a couple of seconds to realise that he's actually talking about himself, which is weird. I think I'd be a bit worried about my sanity if my internal monologue started referencing that guy who does the erotic podcast. It's definitely not a normal thing to refer to yourself, not even in the third person, but even more removed from that, like you're some distant person in a story about somebody else. There were of course some more choice phrases in this chapter. I really liked it when he referred to his penis as a hog. (laughs) That's got to be one of the least attractive ways to describe a penis, like a big ugly pig. (laughs) In fact, I think that's a bit of a trend that I've noticed in some of these stories, especially the straight stories, that dicks get a bit of a bad rap in terms of description. Vaginas are always nice things like a flower or a kitty, and at the very worst you get things like a hole or slit, (laughs) which admittedly are quite bad. But the penis almost never gets anything that positive, and even in the gay stories, it's not exactly complimentary. And while this story has had probably some of the best adjectives or metaphors for a penis, I don't know that many of them are positive things. In fact, in this story, it's mostly military stuff, or to do with war or fighting. My favourite cringeworthy phrase in this chapter has got to go to the moment where Bam is getting the blowjob from the girl in the coffee shop who gobbles up his kids. (laughs) That's not exactly what I think of as sexy imagery. I can't help picturing this horrible child-eating monster terrorising some villages in some kind of medieval folklore. Also, the idea that your semen is your kids, that's a bit sad, isn't it? Probably not something you want to think about if you are having a wank while reading this and you're about to splooge a load of them into a hanky. The runner-up this week is a bit i just talked about where Mimi is lapping the sweat up from Bam Barkley's balls like a hungry kitten. I'm not quite sure that simile works entirely. The idea of a hungry, predatory animal with its sharp teeth and claws near your sensitive testicles is not a pleasant one for me. Not least a baby predatory animal. I don't know if the bestiality of it is made even worse by also being paedophilic. In any case, kittens especially are known for biting and clawing at things. They're just kind of getting used to their bodies and the fact that they've got these sharp things on the end of their paws. I don't think I would trust a kitten anywhere near anything sensitive. Having said that, though, I do think for all its shortcomings that this story probably does have the best dialogue that we've seen so far, even though it can still be a little bit stilted, and it is cliche at times. I think that at least that is in keeping with the film noir spoof genre, and I think it actually works quite well. So I will give kudos where I think it's deserved, and the dialogue in this story is definitely more natural-sounding than we had in, say, Lesbian Slave Island, for example. There are no comments on this chapter, so nothing to read out there, but what I will say before I go is, if you've enjoyed this story, then click on to Literotica and search for David McAllister, McAllister spelled with two L's. If you'd like to see a bit of the back catalogue, there's a few other stories on David McAllister's profile which you can enjoy at your leisure. If you do go on there, then give those stories a five-star rating. Maybe leave a comment, show your appreciation. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then please like and subscribe and leave a rating. Five stars if you want to. That would be great. Share it with anyone who you think might enjoy it. It's always good to spread the word and get more listeners tuning in to the pod. Thank you very much for listening and I'll see you next time for the final part of Death is a Beautiful Blonde. It's just a four-part series this time. Until then, have a great week. See you next time. Goodbye.
1: Drive your car down the filthy streets of the city comes out of the rain and gets into your car She's so good looking that you're not sure how you're supposed to respond Could it be that death is a beautiful blonde?
0: Drive, Mr. Barkley. Drive. Drive. No detective, not any more, you hear. You can drop that Mr. Barkley business, just call me Ban. Mr. Barkley, I said drive. She pulled out my hog and went to town. <laughs> it's hog. <laughs>